would turn there with me. We're continuing on with Paul's testimony uh, and his and his witness throughout the region. And we left off last time, I, I think we left off last time, Paul had been defending himself against several different um, several different authorities. He, he was first of all tried by the Jewish courts. They were tried, and then they were gonna they were gonna send him to another Jewish court. He was rescued. He went to he went to went first of all to uh, the governor Festus, and then um, you know Felix, and then Festus becomes governor, and now he's appealed to King Agrippa, who was the king of that region. He was the king of the Roman king of occupied Judea. So we find him now coming. We find that's all right. I'll just leave it. Sure. Yeah, just leave it. That's fine. Sorry about that. We find it. We in Paul. I think we left off last week. Paul, we're in, in Acts chapter twenty-six, and Paul is talking about. What he's tell, he's giving his testimony before Agrippa. Now, remember, this is a court case, just like we'd have a court case today. We can look at Bible stories and Bible incidents sometimes, and forget they're real events. And this was this would be, I guess, something called the king's court, where the king held court for somebody's trial. And just like in trials today, just like in trials through all of history, Paul is given a chance to defend himself. And that's what he does um, in chapter 26. And I, um, of course, we, we read the first section. Let me just go back and get most of the trial here. Paul says, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you're an expert in the customs and questions that have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, and he goes through and tells about all the bad things he did, was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem. All the Jews know this. They knew me from the first if they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise are twelve tribes earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am a curse accused by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest. When they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in every synagogue, and I compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. This is why I, I know we did this weeks and weeks and maybe months ago now, when we read about Paul getting saved earlier in the book of Acts. The lesson we learned here is that God can save anybody. I, I can't think of a greater enemy of the church um, today than Paul was to the early church. We talked about Somalia this morning. All right, Somalia is a very anti-Christian nation. This would be maybe somewhere along the lines of some Somali leader being saved out of, out of nowhere. And that's what happened to Paul here. And Paul tells about his conversion in the next... Uh, yeah, we know this story, so I'm not going to spend too long here. I want to get on to what Paul was doing after he got saved. You remember, excuse me, you remember this story from months ago. He says, While I was thus occupied, I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest. At midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me. And those who journeyed with me. 
And when all all these had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And we talked about that a little bit before. But I'm going to stop there again for a second. This is kind of like, it's not really like a message. It's kind of retelling the, the events that happened here. Paul said, Jesus told Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Does anybody remember what that meant to be for Paul to be kicking against the goads? I didn't know it until three or four months ago. I didn't really understand the concept of it. What does it mean when Paul said he's kicking against the goads? Anybody remember? Sorry? The spikes were tools that were used to drive the cattle. They, pro- they, they were trying to provoke or guide the cattle. How was Paul? Do you remember how Paul is applying this spiritually? Okay, I think that's exactly. I think that nails it. We saw before, later on, in the book of in the book of Romans that Paul had family and friends who were saved, and the indication now seems to be. And man, this has opened my eyes and how to pray for people I'm close to. Paul was having a hard time because the Holy Spirit was provoking him. The Holy Spirit was trying to get Paul saved. He was stirring his heart. And he was poking and prodding and showing Paul the way of salvation. And Paul, the more that happened, the harder he kicked against the prodding. Because he liked the life he had. He was important. He was powerful. And I look around people around me today, and people who have not yet accepted Jesus as their Savior, and some of the things they're doing. I don't know whether our son Zeke is saved or not, okay? He gave every test, every example when he was younger. If you remember, he was always in church. He did devotions at the table. And now he's living a life that seems to totally be rejecting God. But, you know, and it's almost, there's almost a antagonism towards the things of God. And as, as I read what happened to Paul, and this ought to be a great blessing to us, if we have people who we love, and they're, they're not, they're, they have no interest in God, they say things against God, you know, we have to wonder, are they like Paul? Are they kicking against the Holy Spirit's direction in their life? I've got a good, a good oh, a guy I love. I've told you about him before. One of my former students. He's an avowed atheist. He's foul-mouthed. He's vicious in his comments about God on Facebook. Um, he still loves me. He still sends me Father's Day cards. But he just he's vicious. He mocks Christianity. But he grew up in a Christian home. And I have to wonder often about Daniel. Is Daniel being goaded by the Holy Spirit? And is he fighting against the provocation of the Holy Spirit? If you know, we all know. I think we all know people who we wonder, are they, why are they so, why are they, are, are they the way they are? And I have to wonder if they're like Paul, if the Holy Spirit's saying, you need to be saved, you need to be saved, you need to be saved. And they're saying, no, I don't want to be saved. I like my life the way it is. I don't need God. I don't need Him in my life. I like going the way I'm going. And yet still, they kick against the goat. So Paul says, and then Jesus goes on to say, um, we, know that we know the next part here. He says, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting. Then, then he gives Paul some instructions. And we're going to follow up on these instructions just in a, in a few minutes. Uh, he said, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, who you're persecuting. So all of a sudden, he knows he's face to face with God. Here's what he tells him. He says, rise and stand on your feet, for I've appeared to you for this purpose. He says, Paul, get up off your feet. I've got a job for you to do. And I look at this verse, and I look at other places in the Scripture, 
where Paul writes things like this. Now, now it's high time to wake up out of your sleep. He says, Paul, I want you to get up. I've got a job for you to do. And a lot of times we in our Christian lives can become very lackadaisical. We can become very, oh well, I'm saved and I'm going to heaven and it's all going to be fine and I'm not going to be too bothered while I'm here. But Paul, God told Paul, when he says, I want you to, Jesus told Paul, when you, I want you to get up. Here's what I want you to do. I want to make you a minister. And I want to make you a witness of the things you've seen and the things I'm still going to show you. He says, Paul, he says, I want to use you. I want to make you a minister for me. I want you to be serving me and serving other people. And I want you to be a witness of what I've done for you. Jesus used that word witness quite a bit. At the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus told the disciples, He says, You shall be my witnesses. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. When the disciple, when he left, his, his, earlier on, he had said, hey, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. The first thing on the list of what God wants his people to do, and we can't get around this. I am, I have to tell you, this whole idea of witnessing to somebody, after 40 some years of being a Christian, after working in a Christian school, after serving in a church as the chairman of the deacons, after pastoring a church for, goodness, a good long time now, I still get terrified at the prospect of being a witness, of sharing my faith. I still, I, I, I don't know what it is. I get in a position where I know I should share my faith, and I don't. And it's only been the last two or three months that I've found my venue and my venue is I have loads of dog walking friends that I meet when I walk the canal. I've introduced myself. They ask, when I meet them, they know why I'm here now. And I have been able to clearly share the gospel with at least a half a dozen of these people. I've been able to introduce Christianity to about a dozen of them. All because it's so natural. And now, yours may not be dog walking, but everybody has their own venue. They have their own circle of contacts, their own circle of friends. And if Jesus is really a part of our lives, it ought to be the natural, naturalist, I was going to say, the most natural thing for us to do to share something that is so integral in our lives. Um, I, 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 I love Irish rugby. Everybody knows that. I love Leinster rugby. And everybody knows, and I'm not bashful about it. When I was in the States for most of my life, I liked the University of, the University of Alabama's college football team. I was a Bama fan inside out. I bled crimson, which is easy enough to do. That's their color. But I, I would shout for Alabama, and everybody knew me, knew that I was a Bama fan. I've become disillusioned with premiership football, but I support Chelsea. Anybody who knows me well knows that I like Chelsea. People know the kind of person I am. If people know all of that, why don't they know that I'm a Christian? What's more important in my life? Being an Ireland fan? Being a Leinster fan? Or being a believer? Paul says, that what God, Jesus told Paul, I want you to get up. I want you to be a minister serving me and serving others. 
and to be a witness. He said, I want you to be a witness of the things you've already seen, that you've you've seen in me, and that I'm going to keep showing you. And that's the same thing that God wants out of us today. God, God wants us to witness what He's done for us in the past, and He wants us to be a constant witness for what God does for us now. We need to develop that that ability by the strength of God that when God does something for us, we're willing to tell it to everybody, not just people here at church. It needs to be a part of our lives. When we're our co-workers or our classmates or friends on the street and and we know God does something for us, we need to be as willing to talk about what God's doing in our life in front of them as we are as we are in front of believers. I want you to be a minister. I want you to be a witness of things I've done. He goes on and says, I will deliver you from the Jewish people. He, he telling him he's going to go to Rome, to which I now send you. And look at verse, look at verse 18. Here is, here is the specific ministry, ministry that God gave him. He says, I want you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of sin, of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Wow! We read over that, he's just got blah, 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 blah. It's so powerful. He said, I want you to do this. I want you to go out to that world, and there is a world out there all around us that's trapped in darkness. They don't don't see the light. They have no hope. They, 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 They try this for light. They try that. Everybody wants some kind of light and hope in their lives. So people try everything in order to find it. They try sexual pursuits and they try drugs and substance abuse and they try entertainment and everything else just to get that something to stir them on. And it's a need that people have because God says in His Word, He says, I have put eternity in the hearts of my of people. We are created beings with a sense of eternity in our hearts. That's why some form of religion has been found in virtually every culture ever discovered. Because man has a sense of eternity. But we see it in darkness now. And that's why Paul, God tells us, God tells Paul, and God tells us that we need to go out there and we need to be turning a world from darkness to light. He says, I want you not to heal. He says, I want you to go out there. I want you to share the light with them. Free them from the bondage that they're in. And darkness can, can come in all kinds of forms. Darkness can come in secularity. Darkness can come in possessions. Darkness can even come in religion. It's so. I, most of you know I grew up in Alabama. Alabama, at least back then, was a very religious state. They're called the Bible Belt of America. They're right. There's a buckle of the Bible Belt that runs through America. Everybody's religious, but it's not the Catholic Church there, but it's the Baptist Church and the Church of Christ. And people, they put their faith in the church they go to instead of in Jesus Christ. It's easy, it's easy to criticize um, the Catholic church in this country because this country has been Catholic for so long. But it's not just people putting their faith in Catholicism. People put their faith in the Baptist church their mommy and daddy went to. I, I, I was witnessing in Alabama one time. I remember the door I was, not, I was, I was talking to a guy. I asked him whether he was saved. And he, says, he said, yeah, I'm going to heaven. He said, I go to the Baptist church down the road. And he said, I said, how do you know you're going to heaven? He says, come on, my mom and daddy went to that church. And I go to that church. And we're all going to heaven. That was it. 
the darkness over his eyes. I was sharing the gospel with somebody here, Beth's piano teacher, many, many years ago. And I'm sharing the gospel with her, and it was going so well. She was listening, and I was gagging on her cigarette smoke, and it was, it was going so well. All of a sudden, this veil closed over her eyes. This darkness came across her face because she was blinded by her, her, her religion and she was dark to the gospel, to the light of Jesus Christ. We read in the book of John, book of John starts out talking about how the light came into the world, but the world would not, did not receive the light. And the light was Jesus Christ. And the world wouldn't receive it because the world loves darkness better than light because their deeds are evil. They don't want their, they don't want their darkness exposed. So they'd rather go on in their evil than, than have their works exposed to the light of Jesus. He said, I want you to go. I want you to open their eyes. I want you to turn from them darkness to light. I want you to free them from the power of Satan to the power of God. And my goodness, folks, can we have any doubt in our minds that that world out there is living under the power of Satan? Incredible crimes. We hear news stories that incredible brutality that takes place. The viciousness and murders and cutting... Yeah. Kids are all gone. Cutting people up. Remember the guy who was chopped up and put in a suitcase in the canal not that long ago? How do people do that? How do people abuse children? How do men abuse women? I know it happens on the other side as well, but I'm talking primarily, okay? How does a man beat a woman up, stabbing? It happens because, sadly... Because this world is a world of darkness. And this world is a world where Satan is in control. And Paul, Jesus is told by Paul, I want you to turn people from that world. I want you to take them from that world. I want you to lead them to the family of God. Why? In the end of verse 18, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. They might receive an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. He says, I, I want them to receive the forgiveness of sins. And isn't that the core of the gospel? I have never met a man or a woman that I've shared the gospel with who denies the fact that people are sinners. I've never, I've never met a person who claimed to be perfect. All right? You can't claim it. Nobody honestly can. You talk to children, teenagers, they can't, they don't even claim to be perfect. And the truth is, is that and it doesn't take... So what does everybody try to do for the most part to get to heaven? They try to balance their good against their bad. Isn't that right? And if I do a little bit more good than bad, then I'm going to be okay and go to heaven. Because I can't be perfect. So I'm going to try to be a little bit gooder. And maybe if I'm good, gooder enough, I'll get to go to heaven. You see, everybody seen the YouTube video where the... What's it called? The good meter? The good meter? And they all fall short. Um, some of them, boing, for the badness. They all fall short. And then a guy comes up and Jesus says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. He gives them a document. He says, okay. And Jesus is the one who makes them good enough to go to heaven. Because of sin, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Nobody's perfect. It's just not. So God gave us the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. He says, I want you to point them. I want to sh- turn them from the power of Satan to the power of darkness. I want you to um, 
let me see, to tell them about the peace. I want you to share with them the forgiveness of their sins. But I also want to share with them, sin sounds like bad stuff, right? It is bad stuff. So rather than focus on the sin, he, also, he doesn't stop there. He says, I don't want you just to tell them about their sin, but I also want you to tell them about the inheritance that, that's possible to them. That they can, they can inherit the sanctification by faith. It, it, that's bad news. People need to know they're sinners. But he says, don't stop there because people need to hear about the inheritance I've arranged for them. Those who come to Christ have an inheritance laid up in heaven for them. My mind's going like a thousand different directions in case you can't tell right now. When Peter wrote about inheritance, he says, you have an inheritance. He says, it's incorrupt. He says, it's undefiled. He said, it can't be taken away from you because it's preserved in heaven for you. Inheritances are a great notion. But inheritances, for the most part, they can let you down. But our inheritance in Christ, once we've accepted Christ as our Savior, our inheritance in Christ is locked there forever and ever and ever. It can't be taken away because the Bible says it's preserved in heaven for us. We have the availability and the whole world has the availability of this divine inheritance that Jesus gives us at salvation. That they might be sanctified by faith. Sanctified is a big word. Um, but it just means that they might be set apart to God by faith. Right? It, means, it means literally, we're over here, we're in the world, and all of a sudden salvation, we're placing God's family. From here to here. That separation, that line there, that's that picture of separation, of sanctification. And when we get saved, we are immediately sanctified set apart. And then we live a life of growing in our sanctification as we go through life. Until the day is going to come one day when we're going to be totally, perfectly sanctified in Christ. That's the message. If, if, if we're sitting here today and don't have these, you're saying, Roger, you're mad. What in the world are you talking about? Well, we'll see in a minute. You're not the first one to say that. Alright, so, now he gets saved. This is what God sends him out to do. He sends him out to preach the gospel to everybody. He says, Jews, Gentiles, Greeks, black, white, yellow, brown, I don't care who they are, I want you to share the gospel with them. Just go and tell everybody about Christ. I think it's in verse um, 19 and 20. Uh, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Uh, but I declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea. Then I went to the Gentiles. And he says, here's the message I gave them. <clears throat> Three things, he says. They're all tied together. Repent. I remember Dan's message on repentance. I think it was at a carol service one year. Repentance means that we turn from the way we're going and we turn to Christ. It's that simple. Our mind is in one direction. Before Christ... We're walking down this road and we're, we're, we're bound for destruction. We're bound for eternity without God. We're walking down one path and all of a sudden the Bible says that we repent, which means we turn around and go the other way. He said, I preach repentance. And folks, if we're truly saved, that means, and I, I, I don't know exactly when repentance has to happen. I have, I have seen, guys, seen guys almost get in a fight about whether repentance happens before salvation, at salvation, or after salvation. I don't really care, alright? I'm not going to fight about that. But repentance is a part of salvation. When we get saved, our lives are going to change. 
it may not be an immediate switch. A guy gets saved who's, who's hooked on drugs, he's hooked on alcohol, he's caught up in sin, and he gets saved. He says one day, he says, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I want you to save me, take away my sins, and take me to heaven. He's, he's not going to be cured of his drug addiction on the spot. He's not going to become a non-alcoholic on the spot. He's still going to struggle, but there's going to be a change in his life and a change in his direction. That's what repentance is. He says, I want you to tell people that they need to repent. Turn from sin, and we turn our back. Then we turn, we turn towards God. <clears throat> I don't know what to say. <laughs> repentance. It's, all, it's a subject I would spend weeks in, in theology class studying. But it just means we turn around. We change. We were going one way. We turn around and go another. We do it in our hearts. We do it in our minds. We do it in our actions. He says, I want you to tell people they need to repent. Because without Christ, they're bound for destruction. Does that mean that I need to grab my dog walking buddy and and say, You wicked sinner, you're going to go to hell! Probably not the best initial approach. Right? But we need to get to the point where people know there's something that separates them from God. And they need to know that it's their sin that separates from God, them from God. And they need to turn from their sin and turn to God. And the last thing says there that they would do the works that are worthy of repentance. Ephesians 2.10 is in my devotions this week. Come make my devotions. That's the verse that said, not, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. Um, no, that's the wrong verse. The verse that says we are dumb on it. Bear with me. I know that verse. Uh, can I blame it on, on old age? Am I old enough to do that? Uh, for we um, verse eight. For by grace have you been saved through faith. That not of yourselves; it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And it says in verse ten, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Even before we were saved, God prepared our hearts to do good works. He said he needed to repent. That's that visual part. Remember we talked about the, the mind part of repenting? You repent, you turn away from sin, you turn to God, and then you do works that are worthy of your repentance. If any man be in Christ, the Bible says, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. Is your life, is my life different than it was before I got saved? It's that simple. I can make it all complicated, but it's that simple. Am I a different Roger than I was 40, I don't know, 43, 44, whatever it was ago? Am I a different Roger than I was then? I would hope so. And part of what our sanctification is, what we call in theology, Progressive sanctification. Any guesses what progressive? I told you what sanctification means. It's a separation. Anybody guesses what pro, pro, progressive sanctification is? Any guess? It means you progress in your sanctification. All right? It means you move on in your sanctification. It's a growing process. As time goes by, you, the, the, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a progressing through life until we reach the point of perfect sanctification. A lot packed in here. 
But he didn't have much. Paul didn't have much time. He's witnessing to the king of Judea, who, by the way, was a really, really bad guy. He was immoral, ungodly. He killed family members. He had no regard for anything except himself. And Paul is sharing the gospel. He's got this one shot. Fortunately, most of us don't just have one shot. Most of us have regular cups of tea or chats on the canal with our friends. And we, and we have, we, but Paul didn't have, and there may, there may be times in your life when you only have that shot. When you meet somebody and they, and wherever, and the Lord just, something comes along in the conversation, and the Holy Spirit has their heart ready, and He's got you prepared, and you, you may realize this is the only shot I've got, so I'm going to have to give it to Him. Lot to carry, guys, here. Now you would think, you would think Paul, probably, I use a term we don't use much anymore these days, Paul was probably the greatest soul winner who ever lived. They don't really like that word, but I don't know what else to say. A soul winner is somebody who shares the gospel and sees people saved. Okay, Paul was probably the greatest soul winner who ever ever lived. You would think that despite the fact that this guy was king, Paul gives him the gospel, he's going to get saved, right? Remember what happened with King with, with Governor Felix though? When Felix said, Come back at a more convenient time. Talk to me later. I don't want to hear it now. Alright? And then but I want you to see what King Agrippa says. Um, let me just go quickly here. For this reason the Jews put me at the temple, therefore having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets of Moses said. I'm not saying anything that we weren't talk, told about in the Old Testament. He says that Christ was cut with, would Christ would suffer, He would be the first to rise from the dead, and He proclaimed light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Christ went first, He did those things, He brought light, and now it's my job to share that light with others. That's His defense to Agrippa. So how do you think Grippo responded? This is tragic. Now as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Am I in the right place? Yeah. Um, Festus says to him, Paul, you're beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. He said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but I speak the words of truth and reason. So the governor is here at the the governor is here at the court case. He says, "You're crazy. This is a this is nonsense." He says, "I'm not crazy." He said, "I'm I, the, the but he says for the king before whom I also speak knows these things. For I'm convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner." Paul says, "I've never hidden what I'm doing. Everybody knows who I am." King Agrippa knows who I am. That's why the king traveled down here for this court case because he knew who I was and he wanted to hear this. Festus says, you're crazy. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. What does that tell us? Sometimes we're going to share our faith with somebody and they're going to say, you're a nutter. What are you talking about? You're crazy. That's the most crazy thing I've ever heard. What? What? Turn from my sin? Repent? Turn to God? That's crazy. 
You're one of those nutty holiers, aren't you? Yeah, you're one of those born-again Bible thumpers. I've heard it all, guys, through the years since I've been here. I've been called a lot worse than that, too. But <clears throat> Festus says the same thing. Oh, then he says this. Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Paul somehow knew that King Agrippa believed the writings of the Old Testament. Then verse 28. And man, how many people do I know, do you know, if you've tried to share your faith? King Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. Almost. You've almost convinced me to be a Christian. Right there. He's that close. I think of people I've witnessed to before and said, Roger, what you're saying makes sense, but I can't give up what I'm doing. I can't give up my church. I can't offend my family. It makes sense. It's all it's all there. I just can't do it. We sing a song, an old song. We have it. I don't think we've sung it here. An old, old song that we sing called "Almost Persuaded." And the whole notion of that song was almost persuaded, almost this day to say. He says, uh, but then he says, no, almost, but still lost. It's like they get to the door where Jesus is, and they're at the door, and they just won't come. They won't go through the door. I'm almost persuaded to become a Christian. I'm almost persuaded to turn to Christ. I'm almost there. Paul's heartbroken. Paul said to him, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for his faith, except for these chains. Paul says, man, he says, Agrippa, I... I would I'd give anything if not only you but everybody here would not be oh, not just almost persuaded but fully persuaded of their need for the gospel and I don't know I know most of you I know most of you pretty well but I don't know for sure who or who not may have been almost persuaded but never taken that step of faith in Christ Paul says I wish everybody here would not just be almost persuaded, but fully persuaded. He says, I want them to become like me in my faith, except I don't want them to be in the chains that I'm in. Isn't that great? I don't want them to be chained like I am, but I want them to be the kind of Christian I am. I want them to come to faith in Christ. Um, When he said these things, the kids stood up, the king stood up, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who sat with them up up, up on the stand, when they'd gone aside, they talked among themselves, said, This man has done nothing deserving of death or chains. He's found innocent at the court trial. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been free if he had not appealed to, Rome, to Caesar. We'll pick up after Christmas um, with the trip to Rome and what he does on the way to Rome. But I can't leave this here like this. He's done nothing, he's innocent of the crimes. But I wonder if anybody here, only you know your heart, only I know my heart. Is there somebody here who's in Agrippa's shoes this morning? Almost convinced the gospel is right, 
but not quite. We never read about what happened to Agrippa in his eternity. Did he let eternity slip through his grasp here by just being almost persuaded? How many people do we know? You know, there's people out there that we know. Paul may never have had a chance to talk to Agrippa again, but we have chances to talk to people on a regular basis. People who may have shared the gospel with in the past, and they're almost persuaded, and all they need to see is the consistency in our life and the Holy Spirit working on their hearts for them to be fully persuaded and come to the knowledge of Christ and have their eternity secure. Almost persuaded. Maybe the saddest two words in Scripture. Because it's almost, but still lost. Father, I thank you for this challenge from your word.